that I have historically signed board meetings where people say, what does the bottom line look like? What are we doing for the customers? And what staffing issues do we have? And it's completely on its head. I'm of the belief if you pick the right people, treat the right people and empower the right people, they'll do a great job for the clients and you'll have a great bottom line. It it, it has to go in that order. And as far as directing people, I've, I've always felt if you've got 200 account executives, they should be able to read a job description, tweak it so that it turns them on and it be treated as an individual. Good morning, good afternoon and good evening everybody. I'm Ben Morton and a very warm welcome to episode 80 of the podcast in which we are joined by Mike Cooper, who is the global president and CRO at Adomni. Mike most recently served as the CEO of Enhance Outdoor and prior to joining Enhance, he spent eight years as the global CEO of Rapport Worldwide taking the business from annual billings of $85 million in two countries to nearly $1 billion across 18 countries. Mike is a native Brit who now lives in Westchester, New York, with his Czech wife and their three children. In this episode, we spoke a lot about Mike's people-first approach to leadership and the very real results that has created for the teams and businesses that he's led over the years. We also spent a lot of time exploring the topics of empathy, along with his view that if you have a work persona, you cannot be a good leader, let alone a great one. We also spoke about on how numerous occasions He has supported and encouraged and given real permission for some of his very best people to leave the organisation. I absolutely loved my conversation with Mike and I know you will too. So without any further delay, please enjoy this episode of the Ben Morton Leadership Podcast and my interview with Mike Cooper. Mike, it's great to be talking to you. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, first of all, how are you? I'm, I'm well, thanks, Ben. It's um, Thanks for having me. It's It's been a great week. The world's opened up again. I have family visiting me from Europe here in America, so that, that it's an exciting time. It's starting to feel a little, a little more normal again. Yeah, absolutely. And long long may it continue. Long may the world stay <laughs> opened up and we never, never go backwards. Let's hope. Uh, Mike, can I start just to give listeners some some context? Can you just tell us kind of what you're doing right now, kind of what the job and business is, and a, a little of the career journey that's got you there? Yeah, yes, I'm I'm media industry all, all my life as a as a kid, literally starting out in newspapers and and then moving to to London to the big smoke in my very early twenties, and my my career through no design fell into out home advertising. As, as it sounds, anything that falls outside the house, from buses to billboards to airports to shopping malls and anything else you can think of. And my career really evolved with that sector, which culminated with me now operating as global president of Adomni, which is a digital out-of-home programmatic platform, allowing us to take the oldest medium in the world, which has, through its own nurture, evolved into a digital platform and, and allowing us to buy it with the same accountability and attribution and accuracy that we can buy online media through online programmatic trading. Got you. And obviously now you're in a kind of senior leadership position. I know you've kind of had a, had a few over the years. So this is the other question that I always like to 
ask every guest at the start of the show. So what does leadership mean to you? And I often joke it's a simple question to, to ask, right, but not always an, a simple one necessarily to answer. So what, what, is, what does leadership mean to you? Yeah, and, and you know, interestingly, there isn't necessarily a, a, a right answer. I think there are different kinds of leaders that do, do different things that work for them and work for the people around them. And through advice I've been given, I think sincerity and empathy are, are absolutely key. Human qualities come first. Uh, that gets harder the bigger your teams get. I've managed teams of, of four as a younger man. I've managed global teams of 800, and it gets harder to retain the culture and the honesty and the transparency you want. But for me, it's leadership as, as a word is a little bit of an enigma because really it's it's an, an, a new word. It's influence um, or a newly popularized word that comes out. And, and really, you should be influencing people's directions in terms of what they do and and, and what they do for themselves in their career, what they do for you as a company. And as long as the two complement each other, I, I always believe that if you employ somebody, you have a moral obligation to get them where they want to be in their career or be honest enough to explain you don't think they're going to get there. And, and that's different for every person. So you're, as much as you're trying to influence a company and a culture, possibly even an entire industry, you're also trying to influence individual people. And as long as you can keep that individual need and, and be really accurate in what you ex, you expect from people. It is a topic that I could just keep talking about, but as I hear myself, quite often I'm saying the same thing in different ways, which are all around sincerity and individuality for, for customers, for the company, for the people you employ. I picked this up when we spoke before today when we was going to record as well, actually, that when you answered that question just now, you spoke, first of all, you mentioned something along the lines of influencing people and, and their careers and then after that, you mentioned sort of influencing what they do do for the company. Is that order significant? Was that deliberate? It's always people first, and it has to be. And I think that gets lost as you scale. I sit in board meetings. I have historically signed board meetings where people say, what does the bottom line look like? What are we doing for the customers? And what staffing issues do we have? And it's completely on its head. I'm of the belief if you if you pick the right people, treat the right people, and empower the right people, they'll do a great job for the clients, and you'll have a great bottom line. It, it has to go in that order. And as far as directing people, I've, I've always felt if you've got 200 account executives, they should be able to read a job description, tweak it so that it turns them on, and it, you know be treated as an individual. Once the expectation's set, there's the empowerment to do it as you see fit. Um, and obviously that comes with the guidance and the training and the tools and everything you need, but really the empowerment to do it. And only by doing those two things can you hold anybody accountable for the result. I've always said to people, if I do exactly what you tell me to do and it goes wrong, it's your fault. But again, the word individual comes in again, you know, what's the expectation of you and why is that the expectation of you and what, what is specialized for you? Here's the empowerment you need and the training you need to do the job right. And this is how I'm going to hold you accountable for it. So that, that individuality theme seems to run through. Mm. And what does empowerment look like practically? Because it's something that's often spoke about, isn't it? And not necessarily always lived or done, done that well. Just this week I had a client on the phone to me planning for some work we're going to do and say look Ben we just how, how do just how do we empower our people that's one of the big things we need to do how to do, do I and the rest of my leadership team really empower people to get on so what does that look like within within your business and for you as a leader 
it's asking. It's, it's open conversation. I mean, empowerment at base level means letting them get on with it. Now, obviously, you don't just want your team to go rogue and do whatever they want. But if you have a stringent recruitment process and you employ the right people, or when you do make a mistake, you, you respectfully and politely fix it quickly, and then the expectation is really, really clear, empowerment means leave, leave, leave alone. I mean, observe and watch, and if it goes wrong, be there and, and let them get it wrong. That, that's fine. It's, it's probably essential at some point in your career. And, and if, you're, if you have that honest, open com- communication, you ask, you know what you're empowering people to do. And, and yeah, if, if things go wrong, you fix them. If they go tragically wrong and it's gross misconduct wrong, that's a different conversation. What, what does empowerment look like? It, you know, that, tell me what you want me to do and let me do it. So as, as long as you hold true to that, and it, it is hard to let go, but maybe it's confidence. If you've got confidence in yourself and the people you employ, it's a lot easier to empower them. Yeah, maybe it's harder to empower them if you have some sort of trust issues, if you're a bit of a micromanager, megalomaniac at heart, then it can be hard to let go. Maybe hard to let go if you haven't got the, the recruitment right at the start, which it sounds like you put a big, big emphasis on. If you haven't got the trust and if you are micromanaging people, then you, you, you probably shouldn't be there. Or, or you should be focusing more on developing yourself and who your leader is. Recruiting up is just as important as recruiting down. And I've always been lucky enough to, to an extent, I've been able to pick my own bosses and I've picked people that, I aspire to, and, and I've watched them. But all, all too often, people are promoted into leadership positions just for longevity of service or because they were really good at that job, which doesn't necessarily mean, and, and they were really good at that job, and they really enjoyed that job. But we have this Western mentality that, wow, he's really good at that job, so let's move him into another job that he potentially won't like. And that's where you get micromanagement, because if you don't naturally fall into a, a leadership role but you were brilliant at the position you are now leading you've got really strong opinions on exactly how it should be done and 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 you're just consistently trying to prove that you were really good at something once so you tell people to do exactly what to do and 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 i guess that stems from self-awareness because it's easy to say that but seeing it in yourself is is quite hard and that's why as much as leadership is giving feedback it's also asking for feedback and if you've got a sincere, honest, open relationship with your, your, your peers, your staff, your, your superiors, people should be comfortable enough to say to you, you're micromanaging me a little bit. And you should be confident enough to listen and, and adjust to it. Yeah. You've touched on one of the kind of really common business management dilemmas there, I think, Mike, in terms of like we get someone who's really great at kind of their job. So we promote them out of that into being some sort of team leader role, which often they're not going to be, well, no, I'm fair to say often, which sometimes they're not good at. Sometimes they don't don't want that job. So what's your approach, again, within your business at sort of continuing to keep those individuals motivated, rewarded, engaged to actually don't have any leadership or, or management a- a- aspirations, but just want to continue doing the job that they're good at and the job that they love well i think stressing that stationary is not failure and it it sounds even when you say it's stationary sounds like a negative word but it is is a western philosophy you know in 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 various asian countries if if you have a guy on the factory floor that's incredible at making widgets you pay him more for making widgets whereas in the west we'd promote him to manager our productivity has gone down 
he's miserable and the guys that were his mates on the factory floor now hate him because he's the boss and he's not very good at it. Yeah. So, you know, why not just reward someone for being brilliant at what they do and what they enjoy, which is really what you should be trying to figure out. We, we have this generation of people coming through now whose parents have told them they can achieve anything they want. And it's a lovely sentiment, but, you, but you, it's simply not true. Some people don't have the lung capacity to be a deep-sea diver or the fingers to be a concert pianist. But the, the, the key is to try everything you want, figure out what you're really good at and what you really enjoy, and then just do it better than everyone else. And, and, and don't worry about what's next, what's next, what's next. So we always try and say to people, and even at interview stage, you know, where do you see yourself in five years is a common question. And people, I want your job. Hmm. Firstly, everyone can't have it. And secondly, you probably don't. But to, to put pressure on people to say, look, what, where do you really want to be? What is it? What would, and, and, you know, people will come out with obscure things. And, you know, to be honest with you, I've always wanted to be in Asia, Mike. I'm going, well, great, let's, let's make that happen. How do we get there? You, do, is language needed? I, I, I would have no issue. And I've done it with, with my staff doing a language course because they know I'm going to open an office in France next year and they want to go and run it. But by default, people will say, I want to be an account executive, an account manager, a senior account manager, an account director in your job. And it's not for everyone, and it shouldn't be. And the nice thing about being part of a company, like, like a Domini and many other companies, we have lots of disciplines. If, if, if you wanted to be an accountant in Japan, it might take a bit longer, but we, we could ultimately get you there with one of our divisions. So I think encouraging people to, to not just give the textbook answer of what they want to do, which is a, a really linear view of a career it's you know what do you really want to do what would what would make you want to jump out of the bed every day in five years and let's see what we can do to get you there and if that's not within my company but there's a period of time where we work together and you do a great job for us and you're beneficial to the company and i play a part in evolving you as a professional and an individual and then we we shake hands and part ways and you, you go off and do your dream job and I played a part in that journey then you know I'm equally excited by that that's fantastic mm. and on that last point have you have you always had that mindset that if kind of I work with you if I develop you and kind of ultimately you you move on because uh, the opportunities that you're looking for don't exist then then I'm I'm cool with that because that's that's a mindset that not every senior leader MD CEO CEO has right others have there are others who have the opposite mindset to that. I mean, it depends. If it's, the opportunity simply doesn't exist, but it should, then we've got an issue. Or if people are leaving because they don't feel motivated or rewarded or recognized or challenged, that hurts. I, I hate that. But I, I can give an example of a guy that worked for me, a phenomenal ad guy, ad man, if you like, in, in broad terms, worked with me for five years and walked into my office one day and, and said, I'm moving on. And I was, I was devastated. And he said, look, my, my, my degree was in sports science, which I knew. I've been working on ex-sport brands for several years, and I just absolutely love it. And one of them has asked me to go and be their regional uh, marketing director. It was for Reebok. I was at that. You know, my, my devastation at him leaving was immediately replaced by, wow. And, and he said, and I, I want to thank you for the part you've played in that, Mike. And then we got the Reebok account. So it was a win-win, <laughs> you know. Um, so, yeah, if, if I... If I play a part in in getting people where they want to be in their lives professionally or personally that's the most exciting thing it's amazing and we're going through this at Domini a bit now we we're scaling on a global level and I've been through this before and when you start to transfer people from LA to London or from New York to Hong Kong 
and, and the excitement and the life experience you're giving people, that, that's when it really, really gets exciting. Yeah. And as you are kind of scaling now, how are you going about maintaining that culture and approach that I get a sense is really important to you at really looking after people, developing them, giving them the opportunities? Because the danger is, isn't it, always that as you scale and you yourself become potentially more detached from some people in the business in different offices kind of people closer to the front line how how do you protect the what sounds like an amazing kind of culture and ethos you've built yeah it is hard the the bigger you get and when you scale on a global level you inevitably have a random office with three people in it um in in the country and and it's hard to make those people feel that they are part of a a huge global entity you know because they become very close it's three people in an office and, but ultimately, a company is built on pyramids and, you know, flat culture and all that kind of stuff is lovely. But I, I try never to have more than eight direct reports. But saying that for as long as I can through the growth of a company, I'll, I'll have a cup of coffee with everybody that joins. And that becomes tough when you go international, but it becomes tough in today's day and age because we employ people across 20 states now. I've employed people I still haven't physically met yet, which, which, which hurts. But as long as right from the beginning, people know what the culture you want is and why, and they've bought into that philosophy at inception, you make sure you regularly check in and and see how it's going with your people. You make sure they do the same. And then as often as you can, we did it yesterday. We had everyone on one call. Um, Our founder, Jonathan Goodeye, he's incredibly passionate about culture and what we do for people. We had a staff-owned company. He did an equity piece for everyone that's employed not long ago. So one of us will get everyone on the phone and, pardon the expression, shoot the shit as as, as much as anything. But then also let everybody know what's happening so everyone's excited by the success of the company. I'll share the outside individual salaries. I'll I'll share the P&L. You know, these are the challenges we face. This is what we're working on. This is what we're doing internationally that's exciting that you might have an opinion on. And I think we, thus far, we have a culture where everyone will speak up. Inevitably, we'll get to a scale where some people won't want to. So we always, after, I often get emails from people that might be a little less shy, which is a, a fantastic trait that's undervalued. So again, I, I think I've, I've just basically said communication in a really long roundabout yeah. way. <laughs> um, that's the word. And have you ever had any issues as a result of sharing the, the, the P&L? Again, because I've worked with some companies, especially founder-led companies, where they are so secretive about the, the, the P&L. And like my wife, in two jobs ago, was the commercial director for an international company. She'd never seen the P&L. They wouldn't let her see it as the commercial director. People will pick it too. I think everyone should know how to read a P&L. I mean, back to the point of leadership, people are often promoted through longevity of service or because they were good at a previous job. And I, I've met managing directors that can't read a P&L um, or, or aren't 100% sure. So I think even as part of people's training, they should know. Now you simplify it. They don't need to go down the full list of CapEx and OpEx and everything. But as long as people understand, you know, this is what's coming in. This is what it costs to run the company. This is what's left and, and what EBITDA means and things like that. I, I think that should be shared. So, you know, why you wouldn't want to show your commercial director that worries me a little bit. <laughs> but I, I've certainly not had an issue. And, you know, you have various responses. Some people just look at it and go, great. Some people go, can you explain how that works? Because they genuinely want to learn. So it also exposes your potential superstars that, that want to engage and learn in that area. And Mike, right at the very start, 
of our conversation today, you mentioned and touched on some leadership advice you had. Was it you mentioned around empathy and sincerity or humility and sincerity? Yeah, yeah. I do think that the core qualities in anything are going to be your, your empathy, your understanding, your humanity. Again, I think it stems back to that, as I said, the reason people are promoted. And you meet people that I would say have an at-work persona. And it's often bred from discomfort or being uncomfortable as a leader. You know, the extreme of it are the leaders that scream and shout. And I'm sure with possible anomalies, that's not who they are at home with their kids or, or in the pub with their mates. And as much as, you know, obviously you, you temper your language sometimes, you, you act slightly differently, but who you are through your core should be who you are. And people are given bad advice because they're promoted into positions for the, the wrong reasons, as I've said before, but often by people that were also promoted into the position. So you, you, you now have a, a hierarchy of people that have never really been trained in that. And I, I've heard advice like, now you're in a senior position, you should step away from the day to day. He said, well, great, but what should I do instead? And, and they're not told. So, yeah. you know, they get a bit lost, they get a bit frustrated, and they might snap at people or shout at people, and it's not who they are. So I think, you know, if, if you have a leader or a boss and you bump into him in the street and he's hugging his kid and you're absolutely stunned to see that kind of humanity from him, then he, he has an outward persona and, and you, you don't know him. And if you don't know him, how can you aspire to him or follow him or her or, lead, or, or, or be led by them? So I would encourage anyone who is promoted into a leadership role. And by that, I mean, you know, if you're managing one other person, I mean, yeah, you can read stuff. But really fi find someone who's led you, who you loved working for. Or if you haven't got that, someone who your mate tells you they love working for. And, and go and ask. Pick your own mentors and, and learn. And, you know, a base comment that's been around for centuries and my mom used to say it to me all my life treat people how you want to be treated and it's basic but it is it, it covers so many sins so I, I think that's hopefully the mantra that runs through everything I do when it comes from my mom when I was five you know do you know what it's it's, it's really interesting I've had I probably shouldn't say this because if someone might steal my idea but I'm quite trusting so I will anyway I had this kernel of an idea occurred to me over the last few weeks around creating some sort of leadership book based on like those sorts of phrases and I kind of would refer, refer to them in the UK as sort of old wives tales right but a lot of those old wives tales cliches but actually like that one that you just shared from your mum there is so much truth in so many of those cliches and cliches are cliches for a reason right Absolutely. It's, yeah, let's co-write it, Ben. Yeah, we should do. I'm, I'm in. I'm in. I'll get I'm with my mom. Yeah. I, I, I honestly think 99% life is just be good. You know, I'm, I'm not, people say I'm religious, people say I'm spiritual, but I'm, I'm none of those things. I'm, I, practice, I try and practice the religion of being a good guy. Yeah, that's probably... That's the title of the book. Perhaps the best religion to be, right? Yeah, the religion of being a good guy <laughs> by Ben and Mike. I like it. Um, and back to le leadership advice, Mike, like what's some of the best and the flip side of that worst advice you've you've received throughout your career in terms of leadership I, well actually let me caveat i have been very lucky i, I i've worked for some incredible people who, who motivate me and who i aspire to and i, I still do and I, I think most of the the advice is through observation as opposed to teaching you know when people say to me can i give you some advice i often hear can i tell you how cool i am <laughs> yeah so it's things I've observed and watched, I've seen, and, and how I've been treated. Again, people have been honest and sincere with me and, and held me accountable. And 
been very clear in what they expect of me and why. Ironically, the verbal advice that's given us as let me give you some advice is usually the weaker outside of what I've observed and how I've been treated because, you know, people that just act and influence, you will learn more from them. People that just sit and tell you yeah. uh, how, how to do things. And, you know, I, I have heard, you know, disciplinary advice, just, just make sure they know exactly what you want. Don't let them do that. And, and that really isn't necessarily bad advice, but when it's delivered in a tone like that, it, then it's learned in the wrong way. So I think anything around treating people like anything other than an adult is, is bad advice. You know, make sure you say that. Make sure you get them all in on time. Make sure you do that. And discipline comes from setting expectation and employing the right people. Not, you know, we're not in the army. And I'm sure that even in the army, it's better done, I mean, more so than ever, than example, than, than screaming and shouting. I honestly think anything I've learned, and it's, it's a bit of an enigma being on, a, on a, a show like this because you kind of come across as you sat there going, I'm a great leader and let me tell you how, and that's the, the opposite of, of what makes a great leader, really. So a, anything I've learned, I, I kind of credit to a handful of people above and below me. You know, I've, had, I've, I've seen young people beneath me do brilliant things for clients, and so as long as you're always open to learn and evolve, you'll get there as long as those human qualities we talked about earlier are in the right place. Yeah, like discipline is an interesting one, I think. Having started my career, my first career being in, in the military, I think certainly in the military there's an element of discipline has to be installed because quickly you need to educate young boys and girls really into the military way of, of doing things. And often people joining the military come from some of the um, let's say sort of um, lower elements of, of society and maybe haven't had kind of great opportunities and, and, and role models. But, but more than that, I think where discipline really comes from for me is from a real sense of team spirit and esprit de corps. And it's really about not wanting to let your teammates down, kind of not really let yourself down in the eyes of your kind of co-workers or whatever. I think that's really the the heart of discipline for me rather than it being enforced from somebody else. Yeah, 100%, I think. And again, we, we've kind of come full circle back to the whole cultural piece. If you're part of a team you believe in with people that you genuinely like and care about personally and professionally, then you're going to have the discipline to get there and to get it done. The word discipline ceases to be the right word because you're enjoying it. It doesn't require discipline to do it when you're loving it. And, you know, it's funny with the military as well, you talk about that. There's, and we've talked a lot about, I guess, the empathetic human side of leadership. And the reason I'm focusing more there is because the hard skills can be learned. You know, so again, in the military, the, the, the stripping of a rifle, the nature of a drill can be learned, but it's, it's all these other skills that make you want to learn it and want you to learn it well and do it better than everyone else and do it with that group of people who you're learning to do it with. And just going back to this good and bad leadership and kind of how you've learned a lot through through observation, I wonder, Mike, is there a particular example that stands out for you where you learned how not to do it or the type of leader that you didn't want to be? Like, I'm not asking you to name names. <laughs> we'll, we'll do um, that. Is, we'll do there, that is, there, is, there one, is there one that comes to mind where, like a, a real vivid example? You know, I've, I've seen leaders or managers scream and shout at people and embarrass people and and i just never accept that but I've, I've been on the receiving end of that not so much from a direct manager or a leader but i i went through a period in my life where i had a client who just loved to scream and shout 
And, and I think that had it, that had an effect on me. It really shook me. The phone would ring, and my first thought was, "Christ, I hope that's not that individual." And if it wasn't, I had a sense of relief. And I, I, I guess I just made a decision: I'm, I'm not going to let anyone talk to me like that anymore. You know. And, and, and what you've got to remember is that how much power have I really got as a leader? You know, if, if, if you're base and horrible about it, the worst thing I can do is fire you, and that's it. There it ends. And the second I've done that, I haven't got a right to say a word to you. You just don't work for me anymore. So I think there's an element of, you know, remember how important you are to the organization and the role you play and remember that people have to want to work for you because it's optional. You know, people don't have to be there. I've had a member of staff say to me that a certain manager or a certain client makes them cry. And 99 times out of 100, when I've confronted that individual, they're devastated to find out they have that effect on people. And, and, and if they're not, then they're completely the wrong person. But, you know, when you say you, you really, really upset this individual with your manner, and if you're honest enough to have that conversation and tell them, then people usually want to change. They're usually upset that they did it. it all, that all comes down to honesty and, and confidence. It's, you have to have confidence, to be honest. It's not a default human trait to say something negative to someone. And, that, you know, when you're managing people and you review things, everybody wants to say, you're great, I'm great, there's a pay rise, we all feel good. And, you know, the hardest thing to do as a leader is to be brutally honest about things that may be uncomfortable. Yeah. I just want to flag something you said there, Mike, which just seems really significant and for me is absolutely fundamental, I think, to, to good leadership, which was your point around, remember, at the end of the day, everyone's got a choice about whether they whether they work for us. And I think if we really do keep that front of mind it should drive our behaviors right because they, they, they don't have to they've got that choice just to say you know what thanks very much i, I don't like the way i'm being treated i'm off so 100 percent. and you know on, on, a, on a commercial front you have to bear in mind that when they do that they go somewhere else and it could be to a client or it could be to a, the, the next picture on you could walk into the room and that guy's there you know so you know, you should do it for all the right human reasons, but you should also, even if you don't want, you should do it for all the right commercial reasons. You don't know where people are going to turn up. And, and But again, we talked before about the, the promotion system in the West and how we, you know, you do that. And, and people have this psyche of, I, I should have this very, very clear route. People think being fired is the worst possible thing that could happen to you. It's so rooted into your brain. that, it, it, and, and, and I understand that. It's rejection. It's, it's being told you're not wanted anymore. But it's also a massive growth opportunity. And in the scheme of things, at some point, hopefully sooner rather than later, you won't care or you'll get over it and you'll realize, you know what, I'm so glad that happened because I hated that guy shouting at me every day. So having a consistent fear of being fired, A, if that's been instilled in you, your company are horrible. But also, how can you possibly enjoy your job or be good at it? So it's easier said than done, but you just got to put things into perspective and think realistically, it's not, it's not that important. You're right though. It, it is hard because I guess that goes back to one of our most deep seated human needs, which is to be accepted, right? Because that's how our ancestors remained safe on the Savannah or wherever they lived, right? By being part of a tribe. And if you were rejected, you were outside of the tribe, which was a fundamentally dangerous place to be. And from chatting to a few few neuroscientists, I kind of asked the question, said, like, we always talk about the very old, sort of almost ancient part of our, our brain. Said, so like, how long can we use that for, for an excuse? And like, all of them basically said, like, we can keep using it for a long time because 
actually as human beings like we haven't really evolved that much compared to how old the planet is so it's going to take a long time for us to to adapt from from that mindset like we're a tiny way along the journey really as a as a species but if, if you're aware of that because you're right and on base level we're, we're neanderthals you know our caves are different but what we do is go out every day and hunt for food and to decorate our cave and, and keep our family safe. So I understand the, the psychological comparisons and the evolution of the human mind, but now and there's no saber-toothed tigers yeah. out there. So I understand the deep-seated mindset, but as long as you understand it and you realize that's why you feel like that, but let's put it into perspective. I've actually got a 52-inch TV and a couch in my cave. <laughs> um, it's not... As, as risky as it could be. And, and you know, at the risk of getting too deep, Ben, are we talking about potentially getting fired from a job in advertising or, or whatever you do? And, and you look what's going on around the world now. It, it's hard not to put things into perspective. Yeah, ab- absolutely. Like the last few years has, has taught us that for, for sure. Yeah, it was, um, I was on, last time I came to London, the guy next to me on the plane who worked in oil and I was talking to him and uh, I said, how's your um, last couple of years have been and he said to me I really enjoyed the day off between COVID and World War 3 and um, you know he was making a joke but I thought Christ it has been a hell of a year yeah. hell of a couple yeah. of years and I've said this so many times it's interesting to remember that people have got wildly different experiences of the last last few years right I was listening to somebody speak and they were saying it's been amazing kind of all, all the time and pause and rethink I just kind of looked at this person and said what are you talking about I said that's not been my world my world has been like full-on manic trying to keep a business going that was reliant on face-to-face work whilst trying to homeschool uh, an, an eight-year-old and I've, I've had less time to to think and exercise and all that than, than, than ever before like oh never never thought of that but it's, it's perspective isn't it it has been different for everyone I mean it obviously stressful in many ways and as a as a brit living in in america i didn't see my family for a massive period of time as i said at the beginning saying that my my third child was born in june of 2020 and i had so much more time with him Mm. than the first two you know with the first two within a a few days i was back on a plane or back in an office and it it kind of put it put things into perspective for me I, i was always family first i hope that's come across but now more so than ever so, yeah, it's been, it's been a learning experience in many ways, but if I could do a Thanos click and it never happened, yeah, I'd do it. Mike, before we get too deep and philosophical, let me ask you a few uh, <laughs> quickfire-ish questions to, to wrap up. First one is, what advice would you give to someone about to step into their first maybe MD or CEO role or even like a general manager role? A couple of bits, a couple of top tips. Ask as many people as you can. Ask other CEOs you, you respect and admire what you, you think you should do. The first time I ever went into an MD role, I made a list of about five people. Asked them for breakfast individually over the first couple of weeks. I, I was young for me, and, and the question was, look, I'm, I'm, I've just been made MD. I'm arguably two years too soon, but you're someone I really admire. What advice would you give me? So don't, don't guess. There's, there's people out there that can answer these questions and tell you. And, and then consistently seek, seek feedback. And, and you know, if, unless you are the CEO or owner of a company, if, if you do report into a board, make sure that they've 100% and clearly set out what the expectation is for you. Be brave enough to identify 
the holes you've got in your education and your skills and ask that board to, to pay to teach you them. Put, put you on finance for non-finance directors. If that's what where you, you lack knowledge or whatever it will be. So, yeah, ask as many people as you can who, who you respect and you aspire to. Identify your own holes and insist the people that are going to hold you responsible for the results fill those educational holes for you. Mike, I really get a sense you're a very humble man, so I think you slightly dodged my question. So if I was coming to you, say, Mike, I've just stepped into my first MD role. Like, what, what advice can you give me? What, 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 would, what would your number one be? Clearly learn what the expectation of you is from your superiors and then clearly set out what the expectation is of the company and every individual within it. Cool. Nice. Other than your mobile phone, because that's what lots of people automatically say, um, what is the one item piece of kit that if it was lost, broken or stolen, you would immediately go out and replace? Yeah, I'd, I'd love to lose my phone for a couple of days. I'm not sure how, I'm not sure how quickly I'd rush out and, uh, and get that. I guess my, my passport, you know, I, I love to travel professionally and personally, so that would be really tough. My, my sneakers, I have to exercise. I think that's really important for professional reasons as well as personal ones. And then family stuff, I guess, pictures, things like that. But they're probably on my phone. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we've come back to the phone. Yeah. And um, one book that's had a really big impact upon you? Well, I mean, it's one book split into two, really. There's a book called The Power of Now by Eckhart Tolle. And I'd encourage anyone to read that. I've gifted it to a lot of people. It's helped me. But there's a, a much shorter version called Practicing the Power of Now. So read The Power of Now, and then once a quarter, read Practicing the Power of Now to remind yourself. Yeah, brilliant. That's a great recommendation. It's quite a common one, actually, that people will uh, people mention on the show. And final one, what is a productivity hack or tip that you use that you could share? Because people always love a good productivity hack. Again, I guess they're different for everyone. For me, it's it's declutter. My desk, you know, people walk in and go, where's your stuff? But that, that works for me. And, and similarly with it, with email, I do it, I delegate it, or I bin it. And I, I, I never just leave it there. there. There are now 19 emails in my inbox. And it actually, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm quite OCD, if I'm honest, in, in lots of areas of my life. When I sit down next to someone else and I see 3,000 emails in their inbox, I, I want to clean it for I'm them. I'm the same. It, make, it brings me out in a slightly uh, yeah. shaking, sweaty state. So I think there's that. There's declutter. And from and declutter your mind as well. You know, back to the Eckhart Tolle. And exercise has always been incredibly important to me. I do some form of exercise every day which for me is, is the selfish time in my day. It's the only thing I do for myself. So if it's not exercise, take an hour and read a book. You know, go for a walk. Declutter your mind as, as well as your desk. Yeah, brilliant. And what a great place to, to end our conversation. Mike, thank you so much for joining me today. I've kind of loved our conversation. We've gone off on all sorts of slightly unexpected <laughs> tangents, which is always the sign of a, of a great conversation for, for me. So thank you very much for, for your time and uh, have a great weekend. No, you too. Thank you, Ben. I really enjoyed it. Thanks for including me. There you have it, folks. That was episode 80 of the show. I really hope you enjoyed my conversation there with Mike Cooper. But as I always say, more than that, I really hope there are some nuggets of inspiration, some ideas, strategies that you can go away and implement straight away as a result of what you've just heard that's going to make 
you a better leader, your team a better team, and your business a better business. Before you go and do anything else, I would be massively grateful if you could take just a few minutes to rate and review the show wherever you listen to your podcast from. I say this all the time, but it really does help and enable us to keep bringing you more and more episodes of the podcast. If you do leave a review, remember to take a screenshot and send it to me via email to chat at ben-morton.com and I'll send you a link and complimentary access to my short online weekly planning protocol course that normally retails for $29.99. Also, do check out my free 10-week mini leadership course via the link in the show notes. It's called the 10 for 10 Leadership Programme and loads of people are getting real value from it right now. That's it for this episode though, folks. Hope you enjoyed it. Hope you got value from it. Take care, look after yourselves, and I'll see you next time. Lead on.